Welcome to the Breast of Everything podcast, your trusted resource for breast health information, support, and encouragement. Your host today is Dr. Eric Brown of Comprehensive Breast Care. Welcome. Welcome to the Breast of Everything podcast. This is Dr. Eric Brown, your host today. Cancer doesn't just invade your body, it invades your entire life. When we break the news to patients or see patients in the office with a diagnosis of breast cancer, we know that it's a life-changing event for the patient, their spouse, and their family. The conversation is never easy, and we have a lot of information that we need to get across to the patient in terms of their treatment, what to expect, what their options are, but we always keep in the back of our mind the emotional toll that it's taking on them. I'm very excited today to have with us psychotherapist Dr. Joe Court from the Center for Relationship and Sexual Health in Royal Oak, Michigan. Dr. Court is the clinical director and founder of the Center for Relationship and Sexual Health and the co-director of Modern Sex Therapy Institute. Throughout his 35 years of private practice, Joe has successfully helped hundreds of individuals and couples improve their lives and strengthen their relationships. He also works with patients who suffer from anxiety, trauma, and depression, and provides grief and bereavement counseling. Welcome, Joe. I'm excited to have you today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for on such an important topic, really. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's something, as we were talking before uh, we began recording, you know, it's not something that has a lot of attention um, to the medical community, and that is the oncologic medical community. Um, we, we are giving information that will change somebody's life forever. And uh, that doesn't just end with treatment and doesn't just end with uh, their next mammogram. It goes on and on and on. Um, tell me a little bit about some of the patients that you've seen in the past with uh, cancer diagnosis or your experience with the trauma of any diagnosis, I guess, for that matter. Well, I mean, yeah, especially this one on so many levels, because, you know, we deal with relationships, we deal with sexual health, and it affects both for women because they start to think about, obviously, their health, but then also their sex appeal to a partner and, you know, their breasts have been a part of their sexuality. Um, and so this is something that's going to change their that part of their life, too. So it's important to have both conversations when they're in therapy. Yeah, there's, there's no question. And um, throughout uh, my career, which goes back into the early 90s, uh, the the perspective on what surgery and breast cancer is and what it means has completely changed. And to that, I mean, back in those earlier days, it was cancer. And really, no matter how it looked, it was a cancer. We had to get the cancer out. And the look was far down on the list of priorities. Today, it's actually much different. And with new surgical techniques that we have, the look uh, is very important and should be. Of course, it's not the top priority, but it should be important. We have a number of new technologies and techniques in even something as simple as lumpectomies to provide good symmetry and excellent cosmesis. But again, that sexuality concern that women have is is a real one. And it's not only the woman, correct? 
Right. No, no, of course not. No, the partners are, the male partners are very much the same and they don't want to hurt her feelings, but then they're having their own struggles around it. And yeah, I think that's really good information for people to have that it has changed. Actually, I was at a party a couple of years ago and um, this woman had had breast cancer and she had had them both removed plus her nipple. And she talked about how she had them tattooed back on and that you couldn't tell. And it was a very appropriate party. This is going to sound really weird, but she showed us. And I was so impressed and shocked at how you could not even tell that that was a tattoo. It looked like it was real. Yeah, some of the plastic surgeons have gotten pretty fancy in their tattoo techniques and even can tattoo the nipple in a 3D uh, appearance. So yeah. it looks almost like there's a projection. Yes. She was but very now, happy and very proud of that. Yeah, and it's um, you know it's definitely something that has come a long way. Now, many uh, patients are uh, eligible for what's called a nipple sparing mastectomy. So when they choose a mastectomy as their option, we can actually preserve the nipple and areolar complex. So in essence, it looks like they just had a breast augmentation, despite the fact that they've had their breast removed. Oh. It's, it's always striking to me, however, that many ask the question, will there be sensation? Uh, which again, goes back to our uh, point of it, it does have meaning and sensation in the nipple and areolar complex, which unfortunately for the most part does not persist after the surgery, mm -hmm. is a concern. It's a concern for women. It's obviously, especially younger women, but you know, we don't define young anymore by a birthday. It's, it's how active you are. And as we know, people in their seventies are still sexually active. Yes. Yeah. No, that's really good to know. And I think it's great they ask you that because a lot of people are too afraid to talk to doctors about that kind of a thing. And um, they shouldn't be. And doctors should be able to answer that. And it sounds like you are. Yeah. And there's actually some techniques that are um, on the very, very early stages where some of the nerve preservation in and around the nipple and areola are um, going to become potentials for us to maintain some of that sensitivity. Sure. And, you know, we're talking sexually, but, you know, just about physical attractiveness and, and then how are they going to make up for it? If they, some people just accept it. I've had clients, I've had several. I just think there's such strong women where they're like, okay, I'm going to do this. It's all going to go and I'm going to make the best of it. And I'm going to get strong around it. They start bodybuilding. They start playing basketball. They start taking care of their health in a way that they never did before. And it can be a, a, a total game changer for them in a positive way. Yeah, definitely. I I know that I've seen in my career that um, patients, and obviously most of our patients are women, though there are some men, uh, they really do kind of find an inner strength, don't they? I mean, they really do become a different person on the other side of this. Yes, yes, they do. And I don't mean at all to bypass the trauma and the, the horror. And, you know, we see all of that in our office and, you know, the scare. I mean, women are afraid of this anyways. You know, every time a woman goes to get a, a breast exam, she's worried about it. And then when the doctor comes in and says, yep, this is it, it's a, it's a horror movie for her. And of course it is. Now, we back in my early days in psychology, I heard about the stages of grief, a do you think something like that exists for people that have this type of a diagnosis? Is there a grieving period for them? Oh, hundred percent. The denial, the ang I don't know that you know the stages are in an order, but we always say the order uh, isn't really um, real. It's it's just these things happen: the denial, the bargaining, um, you know, acceptance, anger. 
uh, depression. You know, of course, that's when people come to us is the depression is they can't get past, they can't snap out of it. And nor, nor should they try to do that on their own. This is something that's a teamwork effort. Yeah, definitely. And I know myself uh, that we have patients, especially those that have had a little bit more advanced, or I, I hate to classify it as serious because every cancer is serious, but those that have had a, a big time uh, traumatic experience where they've needed chemotherapy, they might have needed radiation, so kind of everything. And when they come out on the other side, many just do not feel like they can get back to themselves. They just feel like this sense of, of doom. Is there a, a depressive risk long-term in patients with a diagnosis, Joe? Yeah. So what ends up happening is, you know, we, we all get depressed. I mean, days happen, th things happen in our life and we get depressed, but then you can move into depression. And now that's different, right? So that's like, I can't get out of bed. I'm not taking care of my hygiene. Um, you know, I'm not doing, uh, enjoying the activities I used to enjoy. Maybe I even feel suicidal, even if I'm not actively in, or intentionally, but maybe I'm feeling like I would be, it'd be good if I didn't wake up. And that's not an easy thing to snap out of. We always tell people it's better to get treatment or intervention when you're depressed because when you're in depression, it's a lot harder to come out of. It's not uh, impossible, but it's harder. Yeah, and we can really feel for, for women, especially those that are undergoing chemotherapy, because just the therapy itself, um, as much as it's improved in terms of its tolerability, it still is a difficult five to six months of their lives. So being depressed on top of not feeling well, on top of never really feeling like you're ever going to feel well again. Um, what are things that women can do or, or spouses can do uh, during this time, this treatment time? Because patients really need some guidance as to how they can best focus their energy to try to stay out of depression. Yeah. So, um, really it's, it's getting help for themselves even, you know, like really being there for her and, um, being supportive as much as you can be, but you got, it's really, this is not just happening to her. It's happening to them as a couple. It may even be happening to them as a family. And sometimes family intervention is really important. Um, because everybody, you know, people don't understand when somebody's going through a trauma, there's something called vicarious trauma. And that is that you end up having secondary trauma um, by just witnessing somebody you love go through this horrible thing. Um, you know, I hate, I know it sounds um, weird as a therapist saying to get therapy because that's my job, but where else can you go? You can get support group, you know, and Gilda's house is great um, locally here that, um, and it's a great support support place, but sometimes uh, it's better to get one-on-one -on -one kind of support. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I do think that support groups have value to them, but they can also be a little bit scary for patients because, you know, no two fingerprints are the same and no two cancers are the same. So you get around with a group where everybody's cancer is a little different, their treatment's a little bit different, and you kind of look across the room and wonder why they're doing something that you're not. So that is definitely can be very, very scary. So individual right. counseling, I think, I think is a really good idea. That's a good point because you start comparing and, uh, and then some of my clients have said, you know, just being around cancer all the time is very depressing in and of itself. So it's just nice to come to a, a regular clinic where they're not, people aren't being seen just for one thing. Right, right, exactly. Now you touched on something else that I'd like to take a second or two on, and it's a very, very common question, especially with our younger patients. 
the family. How do you talk to your kids? We're not talking about your 25-year-old son. We're talking about kids that are in that 9 to 12-year range. What, what do you think is the best approach that, that patients and families can take in addressing this cancer diagnosis with their kids? Because obviously things are going to change. Yeah. I always tell people it's not good to lie. Kids know. I know people don't think, think kids know. They know. Whether they know you know, in their uh, frontal cortex, they probably don't, but they, they have a, a sensibility that something's wrong. And I think it's important for the parents to be able to say something is wrong, but you don't have to fix this. I'm going to the doctor. I'm taking care of this and I'm in charge of, of making sure I'm okay. I, I, you can talk to me. I want to be here for you too. You can be supportive to me, but you don't have to feel like you have to fix me. That's the number one thing because kids think, what am I doing and what, what could I do to make things better for my parent? Yeah, I, I, I definitely, definitely see that. And, and I try to give similar advice to patients because if you lie, uh, then they kids have this sense about them to know when something's not quite right. And if you don't tell them, which will there are some patients that would prefer to just kind of keep this under wraps. Once they find out, they always think it's worse because you didn't tell them. Absolutely, 100%. And, you know, just being as real as you can without scaring them. But but they might be frightened, and it's okay if they're frightened. This is frightening for everybody. But I, the most important thing is that, that they don't have so, – they're going to have magical thinking, that there's something that they can do to make her better, uh, take it away, and um, – it's just normal for a kid to feel that way, but but they need to feel like the, the, the adults are taking care of it. Yeah, that's great. Great advice. One of the other um, issues that we deal with a lot with uh, patients are those that have a cancer that maybe has been there for a little while. So I have a lump and uh, didn't really get addressed as quickly as maybe I should have. So the patients start to feel guilty themselves for not having done that. And how, how do you think it's best to address that sense of guilt that many patients have if they waited a while before they got their diagnosis? Because obviously it doesn't change anything and it still needs to be treated. No, you're right. I mean, they end up feeling like that um, remorse. How could I, that I did this to myself. I should, and all this, you know, like people do this when people die, even, you know, like I should have been a better person, a better daughter, better sibling. I could have done this. I could have done that rather than just recognizing you did the best you could. And, um, you know, it's not your fault. This happened. You, you did how you, how, how could you have known? Right. Right. Yeah, we we see so much on the psychological side of things. A lot of times, uh, my partner and I, we think that we have some little uh, bit of therapist in us because the treatment sometimes becomes almost secondary to some of the side effects of treatments and how that affects somebody's personality, their sexuality, their intimacy, their relationship with their spouse. Uh, one of the best examples we have is medications that some women take after they've finished a lot of their treatment, which is an estrogen blocker. So an estrogen blocker lowers somebody's estrogen, and we use those medications for at least five years. Well, libido is affected by lowering your estrogen, vaginal dryness with lowering your estrogen. So we're dealing with patients that not only have a cancer that needs to be treated, but some of the side effects of the things that we offer are not without their own psychological issues to them. 
Right. And then these couples come to me and or to a sex therapist and they basically say, what should we do? And I, I always tell them, I am not at liberty to tell you. I mean, you're not going to get a, a Dr. Joe Court response is not the right response for you as a couple. The two of you have to talk to each other uh, until you come up with your own answer. And you may have an answer that nobody on this planet has even thought of yet. But it, let the two of you come to your own place around it, which is really hard. Yeah, it definitely is because we do see some patients that will actually abandon their therapy because they're so affected in a negative way because of the side effects of the therapy. And we always circle back to the original consultation we have with patients where I say, but if I would have told you back then that I have this pill that can lower the chance of the cancer spreading, all you got to do is take it once a day, you would have jumped at it. But now here we are in the midst of it. And now some of these other issues that have come up, we're, we're kind of giving up before we've given it a chance. Yeah, it's such a feeling of helplessness, which adds to the depression, because that's part of depression is helplessness. So she feels that way. Her family feels that way. I'm sure you feel that way. I mean, just even I feel that way as a therapist. It's normal. And, you know, people want to like eclipse those feelings or run from those feelings or hide from those feelings. I get it, but it's not going to be helpful. It's really embracing those feelings, not not like well, I can't do anything about it, so I'm going to just surrender to everything, but to just allow yourself to feel badly about it. Yeah, I think that's important. I think that it it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be angry. And we have to, we can't deny these things because I think I'm not a therapist, but I imagine that when you push those symptoms to the side, they're going to bubble up in some other way. And we know that in the uh, relationships that women have with their husbands as they're going through these treatments, because that's their, their number one supporter, but it is really trying and taxing on a relationship, having to watch your spouse who you love go through something like this and talk about helpless. The spouse is generally helpless. Any advice you have for specifically the significant other, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a, a, a child taking care of an elderly parent, and how they can best put themselves in position to be helpful. To ask for what um, she might need and to really be willing, because sometimes people want to fight her. No, I think you need this. Let her tell you what she needs. You can anticipate her needs and you can say, what about this? What about that? But really, <clears throat> let her be in charge of what she would need from you and really get support for yourself. And it doesn't have to be therapy. It can be going to your friends, going to family, going to each other in the family and being there for each other on such a um, uh, uh, difficult time. And you know, what really adds to the stress that women and families feel are indeed those friends. Not that the friends are doing it intentionally, but as I'm sure you can imagine, everybody you know knows somebody who knew somebody that had the same thing. And here's what they did. So now you're in the midst of a diagnosis, you're planning out your treatment, and you're getting advice from every Tom, Dick, and Harry out there. As, uh, as the spouse, you kind of have to be protective of that, I would imagine. Yeah, very much so. You're right about that. Because then people want to tell you, here's what worked for me. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And that just adds to the pressure of what you're trying to get through. I think a lot of um, the ramifications of what we do um, probably has a lot to do with how we as physicians present things. There was just an article that was published uh, actually this month in the uh, Journal of Clinical Oncology 
talking about women who choose to do a double mastectomy. So real brief, when somebody has cancer in one breast, doing a double mastectomy does not improve the outcome on any level. It doesn't make you live any longer. It doesn't reduce the chance of the cancer coming back. But we do this quite frequently because of the fear that it implies. And this article basically said, we as physicians need to figure better ways to present the risks rather than the risk of something bad happening. Maybe talk about the risk of nothing bad happening because that number is a lot bigger. But when people hear the risk of recurrence is 10%, they want to do a double mastectomy rather than the risk of it not coming back is 90%, not presenting it as the 10% bad, but only of the good. Any advice that you have for for us, for myself, for my partners, for others in the field is how to deal with a lot of these anxieties that patients bring to the table? Wow, that's such a good question. First of all, I did not know that. I've, I remember hearing that if you get both breasts uh, removed, then you're at uh, less risk. But that's you're saying that's not true. That's not true, no. Yeah, that's new for me to hear. I'm probably new for them to hear. And I, mean, you know, I feel like this. I feel like the best thing they could get from you is you being real, you being honest and just saying and just letting them know that you're doing you're learning the best you can. You have the knowledge that you have and um, having a human experience with them, I think, is most important. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that having a connection and and what we're trying to establish in our practice is a connection with somebody like yourself, because. I know myself, I've been doing this a long time, and I'm guilty of not having patients seek out some counseling sooner. I think that that should be almost along the lines of when is it time to check somebody's blood count. If you start to see signs, I think I need to do a better job at saying, hey, I think we need to have you talk to somebody about this because this goes on forever. The cancer diagnosis is made, and like I said, it's life-changing. It's life-changing, and I agree with you because I think a lot of doctors don't see the value in the therapy for the client and don't understand it. And then the idea, and it sounds like you at least have some sensibility about the sexuality part, and a lot of doctors don't, and then they miss the boat on that for her. And then she feels either embarrassed to tell you, or sometimes a lot of women feel like this is the end of their sex lives, you know, that um, their husbands or their future partners, whomever they are, are, are never going to see them as sexual beings. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, as a male in this profession, it's it's a challenge for me because talking sexuality with female patients is a little awkward. And so I do what most men do. I just ignore it and I don't talk about it, which is not necessarily a good thing either. So, you know, we have in our practice now, we have some of our long-term survivorship patients are seen by one of our um, PAs and she's well-versed in some of these sexuality issues because these are long-term when patients are on some of the medications that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So before we wrap this up, any other um, messages that you feel might be helpful for patients, um, kind of maybe a, a little bit about what you guys do in, in your practice and, uh, you know, what, what support and, and when and how people can reach out to you? 
I just feel like people should know that if you go to a therapist or you come to somebody in our practice or whatever, you're, we're going to take you where you're at. You know, a lot of people get afraid that we're going to, you know, get you stuck in your past and, you know, we're only talking about childhood or we're going to um, try to go in a direction that you don't want to go in. That's not a good therapist. There might, as a therapist, we might probe those areas. We might, you know, uh, inquire and get you to think about those areas, but a good therapist is going to listen to what you, where, where you're at, what your needs are, and then follow that lead. Um, you've hired us to help us give you other lanes to follow. But if you say, you know, that's not my lane right now, I'm here. We're going to help you there. However, if it's about depression and you can't get out of it, um, then we're going to probably lean on you a little more harshly on getting extra help. Maybe it's psychiatric care so that you can have medication. Maybe it's yoga. Maybe it's whatever it needs to be so that you can um, not have to live in such a dark place. Great. Wonder, wonderful information, Joe. Thank you so much. Um, I think this has been really interesting and kind of just a tip of the iceberg in terms of things that we as physicians need to do better. And, um, you know, it, it we're we're very good at curing breast cancer, but we have to remember that there are consequences and uh, friendly fire, if you will. The emotional damage that this diagnosis can do um, is something that we, we need to continue to strive to address, I think, going forward. Yes. I agree. And thank you for having me on to talk about some, something. It's it's sacred. You know, I think about the men I treat when they have erectile disorder or erectile problems and those those start happening. You feel like less of a man. For women, they feel like less of a woman when this yep. happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Joe. I really, really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us. You have provided some excellent information and I'm hopeful it'll help many, if not just one person out there. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Breast of Everything. This is Dr. Eric Brown, and I've, been, I've had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Joe Court. Please, again, if there are any suggestions that you have as to a podcast topic, please, we want to hear from you. Please send them along. You can send them to compbreastcare.com. That's C-O-M-P-B-R-E-A-S-T-C-A-R-E.com been fun. It's been very enlightening. Thanks again, Joe. I appreciate all of your time. Thanks for having me, Dr. Brown. You've been listening to the Breast of Everything podcast with your host and board-certified breast surgeon, Dr. Eric Brown of Comprehensive Breast Care. If you have a subject you would like the surgeons to discuss, please email your suggestions online at compbreastcare.com. That's C-O-M-P- B-R-E-A-S-T-C-A-R-E.com. The doctors want to hear from you. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in this podcast are intended for general education and informational purposes only. It should not be substituted for medical advice, treatment, or care from your physician or healthcare provider. Always consult your healthcare provider first.